On this week's episode, we speak with Sacramento Police Chief Kathy Lester. Recruiter came calling and they said, you got a choice, Chinese, Mandarin Chinese or Russian. I said, well, I think I'll do Russian. And I think I'd watched too many Bond movies at that point, right? So I signed up into Russian. But what was really cool, when I left Rancho, there was hardly anybody here that spoke it. When I came back, you know, there's so many Russian Ukrainian speakers here. I think it was fortuitous, you know. So I'm really glad it's an amazing language. And you speak it fluently. Well, I'm not as fluent. I mean, let's be honest, I'm not as fluent now um, as I was. Kathy Lester was raised in Rancho Cordova and enlisted in the Army right after high school. She attended the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California, where she became fluent in Russian and served as a cryptological linguistics. Additionally, she was cross-trained as a combat medic and a range master. Kathy served both stateside in Korea and Japan while she was attached to the 373rd and 368th Military Intelligence Battalions. She was awarded the Combat Lifesaving Medal, the National Defense Medal, and the Meritorious Service Medal. She then joined the Sacramento Police Department in 1994 as a dispatcher, became a community service officer, and was sworn in as a police officer in 1996. During her long career with SAC PD, she has worked in almost every department, and today she is the first woman to hold the chief of police position. During our conversation, we really got to know Kathy Lester, and we discussed all things policing. My name is Charles Lego. You're listening to the Rancho Cordova podcast, and I hope you enjoy the show. So before we start, and again, thank you so much, Chief Lester, for being with us here today. I know you're very busy and probably have a lot better things to do, but I certainly appreciate your time. Um, Upon researching, having you come with us, I thought, well, I'm going to take a look at her bio and just see, you know, how long has she been a police officer, et cetera, et cetera. And I have to say, it's the most impressive bio I've seen in a very long time. So by way of introduction to this podcast, I'm just going to mention the highlights, but it may take another whole show to do so, (laughs) but I'll speed it up. Well, thank you. So um, you joined the, and you tell me if I'm wrong. Okay. You joined the police department in 1994 as a dispatcher. You became a community service um, officer in 95 and a sworn officer in 96. You worked patrol, traffic, recruiting, internal affairs, criminal intelligence, and then as an executive lieutenant who oversaw police services for the city of Sacramento City Unified School District. I sure did, yep. And then you led the contract services division, the personnel and fiscal division, the downtown patrol command, and the division of outreach and engagement. And then if that isn't enough, as deputy chief, You also um, oversaw the Office of Specialized Services and the Office of Operations. That's correct. Good job. Yep, it's a lot. So you're a very experienced police officer. You've been around for a long time. That's right. But at age 17, you joined the Army. Yep. You enlisted in the Army, and you attended the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California, and you became fluent in Russian. Is that correct? That is correct, yeah. And then you became a military interpreter, a combat medic, and a range master. I sure did. 
and you've received multiple awards and recognition, including the Army Life Saving Medal. So I'm assuming you saved someone's life? Uh, yes, I, so I got the medal for, yeah. It was a team yeah. effort, though, for sure, okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, amongst your accomplishments, you're an instructor in crowd control, community relations, gender awareness, implicit bias. You're a graduate of the Sherman Block Supervisor Leadership Institute, which is the Senior Management Institute for Police and Post Management course and the Advanced Post Instructor course and the Police Executive Leadership Institute. Yep, that's right. That's all correct. That's all correct. So you've had a very busy time. Yes, and I like school. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll get into everything that you did. But I believe that you are a homegrown, if you don't mind me calling you girl, yes. a homegrown rancho girl. Is that? I, sh I sure am. Right? So yeah. you were born in Rancho Cordova? No, actually, I ended up here um, when I was a about six or seven years old. So I went to um, third grade here on. I My parents moved. We kind of slowly made our way down the hill. We started in Truckee and then came down okay. to Auburn. And my dad ended up at McClellan Air Force Base. And that's how okay. we came that's down to Rancho. Yep. And what year would that have been? Gosh, that was probably 84. 80, 83, right so there, 82, 83. Yeah, yeah, it's been about that long. I didn't do the math until you just said it. <laughs> yes. So um, tell us about your parents. Who were they? What did they do? And all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, well, my my dad's an interesting guy. Um, I was born down in China Lake, uh, China Lake Naval Weapons Center, like one of the few, like, you don't think of a Navy base being out in the middle of the desert, but I have a lot of family down there. And he was a, an engineer by trade. Um, and so he, but he loved being a police officer. So he got his engineering degree and worked as an engineer for a couple of years and then became a, a oh. police officer. And so ended up um, getting a job up in Placer County and was a deputy up in the Kings Beach, Truckee area okay. for, for years. Um, and my mom was a nurse. They met in the Army. She was, um, you know, a very young Army nurse, not a lot of women into the, the Army. But when they did, they typically went into the medical field. And okay. so they met back east. He brought her out here. And, um, and I think, you know, after a couple of years in the cold, uh, I have a big gaggle of brothers and sisters. I think she got tired of bundling us up in the snow in Truckee. Right. And then he uh, ended up uh, leaving police work and getting a job down here at McClellan uh, doing aeronautical engineering. And so spent a, about a year in Auburn um, and then came down here oh, okay. to Rancho because it was affordable. It was good for families and Mather was still up and running. And so that's kind of how we landed here. So he worked at McClellan before it closed, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. About 15 years uh, before it closed, actually. And how would you describe yourself as a kid? Oh, what kind of kid were you? you know, we were really, um, we were, I have a, um, for my, my folks, there's four girls. I was the oldest of the four girls, you know, and just kind of a different time. You know, both of my parents worked. My mom was a nurse. My dad was uh, gone. They actually divorced um, pretty soon after we moved down here. And so we were kind of on our own a lot, you know, and being the oldest, you were sort of the responsible one. Um, but we, uh, you know, we were um, pretty big church people um, at the time. And uh, my mom sort of expected us to run the house, take care of each other, have no one get hurt and have dinner on the table by the time she got home from, you know, work at 7 or 7.30 um, at night. So a lot of responsibility from a young age, um, but certainly had, you know, I think a certain level of respect for <laughs> our parents for sure. Um, but, we, you know, we had fun growing up here. Rancho is a, a pretty uh, neat little town, and it's so much bigger than right. when I left. But right. before it was really 
a military town. And so like for the summer, we all had a pool pass, like every family had a $40 pool pass. And that was how we spent the majority of our, our summer cartoons in the morning, go to the local pool all afternoon and then get home, make sure the house wow. was clean. Where was the pool? Um, well, we, I grew up on Aramon actually. Okay. So there's a pool right down the street, a okay. couple of blocks. Um, and so and that the, was the community, the thing community to do, pool. To yeah. The pool? Yeah. And if we wanted to, if we really wanted to, you know, fancy it up, we go down to the one off of Chase Drive, the right. big, you know, Hagen right. Park, you know, we did that and it's funny that we're here because the other thing we would get on the bus um we rode the bus a lot as young kids and got in the bike trail but we go over here to the library because they had air conditioning and it was so hot we weren't allowed to run the air conditioning in the afternoon this library across the, the library street? across the street so we would regularly get on the bus and come over here to the library and spend the afternoon yeah. in the library or you know over at king skate which it's not king skate anymore it's like the rink or something but that used to right. be king skate oh, that was yeah, yeah, that yeah, was a big rink. deal yeah right across yeah so every once in a while you know we did that throughout the oh, year okay. take the bus and to the rink. Did you go to Cordova High? I did actually. Yeah, yeah Mitchell Junior High, and then I went on to uh, to Cordova, and uh, I didn't make it out of Cordova though. I ended up dropping out in my senior year. Um, but yeah, that was where I that's where I I landed. So the one thing I've learned about Cordova High since being here that they have a huge sports reputation. Oh, huge football! Were, my goodness. Yeah, were you into the sports thing? You know, I was when I was at Mitchell. Mitchell, they uh, used to do tenth through twelfth grade. I think they probably still do over at Cordova. And you went to Mills or Mitchell um, and did seventh, eighth, and ninth. So when I came out of Mitchell, I was like top student, played basketball, and I got a opportunity to go to Sac State at night. So. Um, I ended up starting Cordova as a sophomore and we'd go to school all day. Then I would catch the bus and go to Sac State and started picking up classes in okay. the evening there. So it kind of um, impacted my ability really to do sports because I was doing high school and college at the same time. Um, but it, I wouldn't change it for the world. Right, I mean, it was right. quite the experience. So you went to Sac State before you would have traditionally graduated from yeah. Cordova? Yeah, sure did. Yeah, they have a. I think they still have it. It's the accelerated college entrance okay. program and uh, I know academic talent search that's how I got started right. um, in their summer program and then got picked to start taking college okay. classes at, at night so used to you know go to high school and the days that I wasn't I had a, a couple of um, after school jobs here on the days that I wasn't working I'd be at Sac State taking classes wow. at night yep. so you've always been a studious person oh yeah you I, like studying and yeah which is why it's ironic that I ended up getting kicked out of high school right <laughs> oh they for, kicked you out yeah I had it I was a truant by the yeah. end and I had a terrible GPA right. I was getting like great grades at college right, right. and it just kind of walked away from high school and okay. ended up at one point at seven I just turned 17 with no high school diploma and no degree and right. kind of kind of stuck and so that's when I turned towards the army right so one thing I'm always very interested in is leadership people in your position you, sure. know, you, you you lead many people and we'll get into way more into leadership but just while we're on the subject of your childhood could you tell us one story, if you remember, from your childhood that impacts, impacted the type of leader you are today? Oh, gosh. Or were you not even thinking in those days? Yeah. The you know, actually, it was. Um, I wouldn't even say it was necessarily my childhood, but I remember, um, you know, during the Army, um, really, you know, pretty young. I think I had just literally turned 17 by a month. I birthdays in January. By February, I was signed up in the Army. And the way they did it um, was I wasn't sent away to boot camp for about six months. So they sent me to a reserve unit over at the old Army Depot. So once a month, I'd go down there and train. And I remember I was painfully shy. Like, as you can see, I'm a 
bookworm. I was tall. I was gangly. And um, I remember like the sort of how people carried themselves in the unit and realizing that I did not match that. Like I didn't have the confidence. I didn't have, I was very, very shy. It was hard for me to engage. And I remember um, one day it just sort of clicked that like, if you want to change your life and if you want to do something different, you're going to have to change the way the outside world sees you, how you interact and how you take on responsibility. Um, And so I think I made a conscious shift um, about that time to not be so much of a wallflower and get out of my shell. I'm still to this day very much an introvert, although people laugh when I say that, but to really push yourself out of your comfort zone. And that was probably one of the first things I learned is that if you're going to be a leader, if you're going to affect change, you have to be outside of your comfort zone. And so learn that at an early age. And then I made a lot of mistakes. I think that's probably how I've made <laughs> probably some of my best leadership decisions and you know have like, right. trained myself in a way to do better. So I'm assuming you enlisted in the army right out of high school. Yeah, you were 17. Right? 17. Yeah. yeah, and they had a rule at the time that if you were a girl, um, you had to have a diploma. And so I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I wasn't expecting to get kicked out of high school, but I finished over at Walnutwood, which used to be an elementary school. Um, they had like a, a basically a home study program. So I knocked out my last you know semester right. of high school in about two or three weeks and then have my proficiency. And test. how long did you serve in the army? Well, I was on active duty um, for a couple of years. And then um, I actually stayed in the reserves for a total of about 10. So oh. I did it for, for quite a while, but yeah. I was away on active duty for two or three years. And how was your army? Can you t- tell us a little bit about your army career? What oh. did you do? What did you get up to? That it, kind of thing. <laughs> it was hard. Boy, was I'll it? Tell was you. it hard? There's nothing. I mean, yeah, it, it really kind of put me on the right path, I have to say. Like, first of all, going into it, not really confident so externally. Right? Yeah, it? not yeah. a lot of gals in it. You know, um, very physical job, very physically demanding. It really pushes you to kind of your physical limits. But that also, like, affects your mental limits, right? right? You know, you get so tired, you wonder right. if you can kind of go on, if you can right. Keep pushing through. It did really teach me to have an amazing work ethic. You know, I've always worked really hard, always had jobs, um, always put a lot of effort in school. But like even now, I look back and I'm like, well, today's a tough day, but I've had, you know, just as tough, if not tougher days in the army, you know, no sleep, really bad conditions, you know, no food. And I right. think that that gives me a special appreciation for the military today. Did you have a role? Did you have Yeah, a- I, I was I was enlisted, so I was pretty low level, right? right. I mean, started as a private, you know, like an E1 and then made it up to um, like an E4 and eventually into a sergeant. But we were all sent to boot camp and then on to like a very extensive uh, training. I went to language training first and then I went to an intel school after that. So that whole training was a about two years okay. to do, and then came um, back here and went to a variety of assignments. Um, and then at each step, you know, at each rank, you get a little bit more responsibility. Right. Right. But in order to get there, you've got to be able to sort of prove, you know, right. that you're going to do okay. And unfortunately, at those younger ranks, there's kind of almost an automatic where they bump you up to the next one. But to your, you know, answer your, your question, I remember, um, I think I was probably a little lost in those years, right? Even with the structure of the military. And I had gotten, um, and I tell this story to like new recruits, you know, I had gotten in trouble. We were, I was in the barracks and they used to do these things called health and welfare inspections where they would come through your room in the middle of the night and they would check for contraband and things that you weren't supposed to.
to have. And so one Saturday night, like you couldn't have alcohol, you couldn't have cigarettes, you couldn't have, you know, anybody who wasn't supposed to be in your room, you know, in your room. Well, needless to say, pretty much everybody on our floor, all of our rooms got tossed and we all, you know, got right. some type of violation. So I, I remember um, like the very next morning I had to report to our platoon sergeant's office and I just thought, boy, this is going to be the end of me, right? Like I know the rules and I broke them and, you know, 18 or something at the time. And I was kind of terrified to go into this guy because he was a dad and he was very soft spoken, not the kind of guy you want to disappoint or, you know, have yell at you. And so I walk in and I remember like this conversation went very different than what I thought was going to happen. And he said, um, you know, what basically he's like, you know, you're in trouble. What are you trying to do with your life? What do you expect it to be? And I had never really thought about like, you know, I'm just trying to make it through the day. I haven't really thought down the road. I don't have a plan. He's like, you really need to pay attention if you want to be successful to those people that are successful around you. If you want to be a sergeant, pay attention to what a good sergeant does um, and see how they carry themselves, see how they interact with people, see how they lead, you know, well, be that's a student. Good advice, yeah. It was good advice. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and he said, you know, start being a student of leaders around you, you know, and make up your mind on who you want to be. Don't waffle. And you see so many kids that right. are kind of, not really sure what they want to do. So it really kind of resonated with me. And I left, of course, I got in trouble. I had to like clean the washing machines every day before, <laughs> you know, formation at five in the morning, um, you know, for a month. But um, boy, I learned from that. And having somebody like bring you in and having a heart to heart discussion about where do you see yourself and what do you want to be? First time I had actually even thought about it. And I think that really probably like changed the trajectory of where I was going after yeah. that. Um, and uh, what came after after the army. Yeah. So I came back here to Rancho and believe it or not, had all this great training, but you know, like, what are you going to do with it? Like, how are you going to find a job? So I worked at the pizza hut over on Coloma road, right down the street from my mom's house. Um, and did that for a couple of months until I got a job at MCI telecommunications, uh, which if you, if you're my age, you remember MCI and Sprint yeah. when they had their yeah, own yeah. phone companies. And so, um, I was a international phone operator for a little while and I knew I had to go back to school. So I was over at America. River College and taking some classes. And this is, you know, I'm older than Google, obviously, mm -hmm. and older than the internet. If you remember the job boards that they used to yeah. have, and I was always looking for some kind of better job. And I saw they had advertised police dispatcher and it made 12 bucks an hour and had benefits. And I thought, oh my gosh, 12 bucks an hour, I'm going to be rich, you know? And so um, went and I applied, took a, took the typing test, took the test. And, uh, and, and I, I almost, they offered me the job and believe it or not, I almost didn't take it because I didn't want to give up my free long distance, which wow. again, no one even thinks about, right? right, right. I'm like, oh, I have free long distance. Because in can, those days you yeah, had to pay. If you, call, pay. if you called New York, you're yeah. paying extra. And I said, is it going to make a difference? Do yeah. I want to leave? Right. I'm kind of happy over here. And then I said, well, you know, this seems like more of a career. And boy, once I got what, there, yeah, what a, yeah, yeah, what a change. A... And... So just to backpedal, why yeah. Russian? Well, they have you take a test. Um, I think it's called the D-Lab. And the reason I ended up in the Army was because I um, it got you out of class for like four hours, took the test in the cafeteria over at Cordova, and um, they they offer you a number of jobs. So the recruiter came calling, and they said, you got a choice, Chinese, Mandarin Chinese, or Russian. And I said, well, I think I'll do Russian. And I think I'd watched too many Bond movies at that point, right? Wow. So I signed up into Russian. But what was really cool, when I left Rancho, there was hardly anybody here that spoke it. When I came back, you know, there are so many Russian 
Russian Ukrainian speakers here. I think it was fortuitous, you know. So I, I I'm really glad it's an amazing right. language. And you speak it fluently. Well, I'm not as fluent. I mean, let's be honest, I'm not as fluent now um, as I was, um, it, be, just because I don't use it nearly as much. But I can still, I still get by. But if you watch Putin give a press conference, can you understand what he's saying? I can pick up a lot of it. Yeah. yeah. And actually, um, um, when you listen to the Ukrainian president when he gave his yeah. speech right yeah, afterwards, yeah. I was able to pick. That's an amazing speech. Yeah. Um, if you speak Ukrainian, Russian, or not, like listen to the translated version. Right. Um, you know, I really give him credit for yeah. that. And then we did a public safety announcement um, in Russian. I don't speak Ukrainian very well. Um, not certainly not enough to to do a, a piece in it, but really calling for peace because yeah. we want people to understand in this country, you can come out, you can you can protest, you can right, speak right. your mind. It's a First Amendment right. right. And we didn't want to see violence between two groups. And fortunately, we haven't seen that here locally. Right. You know. Yeah. So then you joined SAC PD. It was SAC PD you joined, it was right? PD, yeah. yeah. As a dispatcher. So when you joined, was that with the view of where you say, well, I'm just going to be a dispatcher or did you say, well, I'm going to do that and then I'm going to become a cop? Well, no, I actually never really thought about being no. a cop. I wasn't, I, I had some, I had, I think I had my mind kind of set on the federal government, you know, looking because I'd been with the military, right. looking at some of the federal agencies. I was going to go back, get my government degree right. and then maybe look at going to work for the right. state department. But I'll tell you, once I got in, um, I just thought it was an amazing job. And I hated sitting behind a desk. God bless dispatchers because sitting behind a desk and working a computer all day, right. I'm just not physically made right. for. Um, and so to have to have people be able to do that and do it well, I really give them credit. But they offered – they opened up a community service officer position. And at the time, I was only like 19 or 20. I wasn't old enough to be a cop. So that was my way – so what like is a community field. service officer? Non-sworn. A lot of agencies do it, but okay. essentially you get like a little tiny mini academy, a little bit of field training, and they put you in a squad car and you take low-level um, calls. So you take accidents, missing oh, persons, burglary okay. reports. So like an auxiliary? Kind of, well, it's a full-time job yeah. um, and, you know, you get assigned to a patrol oh, team okay. and then you help the sworn by taking like more of the kind Are of day-to-day stuff. Them? Oh uh, no, unarmed, no. and yeah. uh, and it's a great way to become sworn because by the time you get in the academy, you know how to work yeah, the radio, exactly. drive yeah, a car, yeah, yeah. take a report. Okay. Makes the academy. So it's kind of a, like a fast track at the academy. Kind in of, a yeah. Way. yeah, and it really makes I think a lot of folks that do that track and go through. And then right. when I turned twenty one, I applied for the academy, okay. and I went with SAC PD. Honestly, one I had worked there, but at the time they had really strict requirements, um, and I met the vision requirements, <laughs> and so I was like, well, I can work here, um, and so I was, uh, you know, definitely. Uh, lucky to have just fallen into this dispatcher job and uh, up to up to today you've been with them 27 years right? well yeah let's see i started in 94 so yeah. we're pushing 28 29 yeah. now it's been wow. a while okay. yeah crazy huh and then so your career as an early police officer so i'm um, presumably you worked patrol first yep, yep. and then just a shift yep always worked graveyard yep. and went to school during the yep. day worked graveyard at night and oh, you did slept in my car and went to school at sac state you know and finished my degree that way okay mm -hmm. yep and then you just worked through various departments. So do you become a sergeant, a lieutenant, a captain? Is that how it works? Yeah, I mean, you test for those positions. So um, I was a, a pretty young officer, and I tested fairly young for sergeant. But I had been a sergeant in the Army for a while, and I had gotten— Oh, you were a sergeant in the Army? Yeah, I finished yeah. up. And, okay. um, and so I had— 
basically, I've been working recruiting. I've been in patrol work recruiting, and I had a great captain, Ricky Jones. And if he's out there listening, he's a wonderful human being. And he um, he really helped me. He um, he basically said, hey, we have this, this vacant sergeant's position. Will you be in acting for maybe a month and run this team? I'm like, I only have four or five years on. All these guys are older than me. He's like, no, you'll be fine. Do it. Well, I ended up doing it for almost a year. And at the end of the year, he, uh, he said, you know, you really need to think about testing for sergeant. And I hadn't really thought about it, right? But he really pushed me to do it. And God bless him because I wouldn't have done it without him. Um, I was not, didn't have, like, didn't think I was ready. A lot of stuff I wanted to do. And so took the test and got promoted right away and then moved on to doing a bunch of other things. And then I've just kind of moved up Kept the ranks. Moving up, yeah. 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 And then did you stay in uniform or do you have to do stints as a detective? No, you don't. Actually, those are no. tested positions. You can stay in yeah. patrol. You can All stay in uniform, yeah. you know, as much. Um, you could I, rise up the ranks yeah. in patrol well, or as, yeah? Yeah, you could. I think the higher you get, though, the more experience you need right. in other areas because right. right. you're given more responsibility. So if you only are on one track, it's going to be really difficult to manage other right. things and lead other departments well. So I always, when I talk to people, it's about like really forcing yourself again to be kind of outside your comfort zone and taking on things that you don't, you don't really are, you're not really familiar with, right? right? That makes you just a better employee, makes you a better leader. So I think that diversity of experience is really important. So one of the, you know, kind of the other piece of advice is I got was just always take the job that nobody else wants, right? right? Um, your job is to make your boss's life easier and it's to get your organization, whether it's the military, the department, getting them moving right. forward. And so people have to take those jobs and those jobs are the ones that I have learned the most in. Um, the jobs nobody else wanted, they weren't really glorious, um, but they've really, I think they've really gotten me to where I am today. So from a curiosity point of view, how does, how does um, a patrol officer today, he's out of the academy two years, three years, so he's done all his probationary stuff, he's now, you know, he's doing his own thing, he or she, how do you rise up the ranks? How, what, what is the trajectory for that? Is it studying? Is it commitment? How do you do it? Yeah. Well, you know, um, for the first rank of sergeant, well, first of all, I kind of back up. I think really the first rank is becoming a field training officer where you right. become a corporal, right. you test for it, and you start training new officers coming in behind you. And that kind of training, when you actually have to teach something, right, right, it, right. that really kind of drives it home. But a lot of what we look for and what you need, you know, you have to have a great work ethic. You have to have a good reputation. You know, you need to be able to work really well with a variety of groups. And so a lot of, um, you know, kind of a lot of what it takes is leadership. And so, yes, there's a test, um, and yes, there's an oral panel, um, and you can get through those things. But we do like an, um, basically, um, you know, 360 evaluations on on people, and a lot of it has to do with what your your peers and your supervisors say about you. You know, are you really going to be an asset at that that first line supervisor level? And so, there's some people that can test really really well, but they're not great with people. Right. You know, and that's a challenge. You know, and there's some people that are great with people and they struggle with testing. So we really try right, right. and work on developing people that want to promote because we need good leaders, you know, um, everybody's got a challenge. Everyone's right. got something that's hard for them. So. But being a police officer is a people's person, right? Yep. You're dealing with people. Is that important in, to, in the um, selection process? Yeah, communication uh, how, is everything. Yeah. You yeah. don't want uh, people that 
people say, hey, he was rude to me. You don't want any of that. Really, it's the biggest, right? I think it's the biggest challenge we have in law enforcement. Like you've uh, kind of, I'm trying not to shift gears, but, um, you know, talking about trust between communities, especially communities of color and law enforcement, yeah. there's a long and complicated right, history right. there. And we, I can have big programs. I talk about this all the time. I can have youth programs. I can do a lot with our nonprofits. I can have these violent crime initiatives. But I'll tell you what, like if the cop that shows up at your accident or your door or on your call isn't polite, doesn't leave you feeling like they cared, doesn't leave you feeling like they wanted a better outcome for you and they were trying right. to do their best, we're failing in law right, enforcement. Right. And so it's not just about being able to talk to people, but it's about really having empathy right. uh, about people. I, I learned that from my dad a long time ago. You know, He would talk about calls that he had been on and how it's about going above and beyond trying to like not just do your job and check the box, but you know, we, we get called where people need us. They don't call us when right. things are going well. I, I mean, listen, everybody I think has experienced, has had an experience with a rude sure. police officer. And it sticks with you. Yeah, well, yeah, it does. I, I think it depends who you are. Yeah. With me, I kind of figure, I, I understand how difficult this job must be, you know? Um, but I think you just need to, if you go to a store to buy something, you're expecting, or a restaurant, you're expecting good service, yep. right? And I think it has to be the same with the police department. You know, if you call the police, you're asking for them to come and do something for you. And I think the interaction has to be good, given that you're nice to them, of course. Now, I, you know, if you, if I, if you immediately go off at them, I understand. But so that is important in the um, um, promotion side of things. Well, one thing that we're doing right now, um, as maybe goofy as it sounds, is we're teaching customer service. We do a great job of teaching police officers how to do all the tactical, all the technical right. things, you know, and we have great people in the profession, you know, and it, it shows when, you know, we survey, um, you know, how people feel about us. But um, to actually talk about customer service, to your point, yeah. you know, like I worked a lot of jobs, phone company. I worked at JJ North's Grand Buffet, Pizza Hut, Cloth World, everything here in Rancho. And um, that was always like really important. Like you may not always be able to make your customer happy, right. but you certainly need to try. Right. right? And right. that's a different kind of kind of mindset. Right. Police work's different because, like, you can't choose another agency. If you live in the city of Sacramento, right, exactly. you're getting a city of Sacramento yeah. police officer. Right. You don't get to say, well, do I like Elk Grove better right, or Folsom? Right, right. Who's coming to my right. house? So we're kind of like we have a monopoly. And, you know, you need to – for that reason, it's even more important to make sure that we're providing a really high right. level of service, in, in my opinion. I think basic politeness is not difficult, to Goes be a long honest. Way. Yeah. Yeah. So you joined the police department in 96 and you were, we talked, you're a patrol officer right out of the academy. Now here we are 30 years later. Yeah. How different, and by the way, this question, the guys here, they come up with questions. Okay. So this is Raphael's question. Um, 30 years later, how different is it being a patrol officer today? Yeah. Do the officers today face different challenges to when you were on patrol in the late 90s. Oh, yeah. Now, I think it's really different. Um, they have, I mean, there's, on the good side of things, there's a lot more technology available to them that really helps them be really effective at reducing crime. You know, our computer systems, everything you get into, and then, you know, our newer officers especially are just whiz-bang at being able to navigate those systems. Um, and challenges that we had, you know, when we couldn't identify people, those things, like, just don't even exist. But I'll tell you, it is a really, it's a much harder job now. And I tell this to my cops all the time. What they have to do on the streets is totally different than what I did on the streets. There's a 
much higher level expectation, I think, to deliver service. There's so much more scrutiny. And I think that's one of the... Do you think the, this, the proliferate, the cell phone? Oh, yeah. That's yeah. a big change? Well, I, absolutely. I mean, we're used to working in public and having people watch us. It's right. not a, a big deal. But, but I think that there, you know, yeah. um, I think when, there's a, a reality that um, everything that they do, everything that, you know, ev everything that they do at work, you know, is going to be captured, you know, from the smallest little mistake right. to things that you see nationally everything's right? on bot yeah. and that's in a way that's it's really great um, yeah. because i think it really captures yeah. what happened but yeah. i also think it's a challenge for our officers because they feel like they can certainly on the day-to-day -day stuff get nitpicked for anything but there's definitely i think um, a fear and a challenge out there that you don't want to be the next viral video right. and we're put in situations that are really difficult right. you know and we're human and i think right. people forget that no, you no, know yeah. no, and they, you know we do a great job and you know sometimes we make mistakes and sometimes there are just people that shouldn't be in the yeah, profession right. quite honestly right. but i think for your day-to-day -day patrol cop um right now it is a really tough environment so many people truly appreciate what we do and we get thanked all the time you know um but there's definitely a narrative and you see a lot of that you know in mainstream media um that that cops are bad and um you know the whole system needs to be revamped and right. you know we need to start over and i don't i don't think that's true i think we can always improve but i think it's widely widely blown out of proportion in certain cases so when you took office in 2022 right early 2022 yeah uh december of uh, december 31st of 21 so yeah, yeah so officially uh, yeah. uh-huh one of the key initiatives was was the violent crime reduction strategy yeah so two questions here so you've been chief now for over a year so one what is the violent crime reduction strategy yeah and secondly how is it going yeah, thank you for asking. So we have seen a pretty significant uptick, not just here in Sacramento. This is a national um, issue over, uh, you know, 2020, 21, 22. But in 21, we in Sacramento saw a significant uptick in our homicides and um, also our, our shootings and our number of shooting victims. And so coming into, I had been in operations and, you know, we had been challenged by a number of things. If you remember 2020, that's when like really um, a cycle of large scale protests took place here in Sacramento across right. the country. And in Sacramento, it wasn't just, um, you know, the social justice issues of the summer of 2020. We moved into the elections. Right. right? right. And so we had, um, you know, being the capital city, some unique challenges. Right. And what people I think they I think most people understand is like there's not just cops sitting in the wings. If we have a big thing like a, a protest that we need to staff, we're pulling people out of their normal right. jobs. Right. And so I think that um, that really challenged us. And I think that the pandemic really created a lot of mental stress on communities and, and vulnerable people, for sure. So there's a lot of reasons that we saw an uptick of violence across the board. Um, so one of my priorities coming in was really to try and, and talk about what we do. And uh, there's a lot of great research out there. Um, there's, um, you know, a number of writings. Urban violence has been widely studied. And so we are able to rely on a lot of the research to know what works and what doesn't work. And so I can tell you the difference. Like you had asked, how's it different from when you were, you know, younger? When we had a violent crime problem before, let's say we had a number of shootings in an area, what we would do as police is we would saturate a neighborhood and we would stop anything that was moving. We would really, you know, we would take people to jail and we'd get guns off the street. 
What we also did was created really irreparable harm to those communities because, um, you know, there is a, an unbalanced focus right. and you're just stopping everything. Because we in a sweep like that, you're yeah. going to suck in people that are innocent. Right. right. And, um, you know, you're stopping people, I mean, for legitimate reasons, yeah. you know, on traffic stops. But you do have an over-concentration right. of police. You'll have an over-concentration right. of, um, of enforcement. So that's, that's a huge problem. And the intentions of it were good, right? We're trying to stop violent crime, but the outcomes aren't. And we're... Right. We're facing that now in the in challenges in our communities. So what we know about urban violence, it occurs in very small geographic areas and it's committed by a small number of people. When we really looked at our numbers, about 50 percent or so of our violent crime um, occurred in about seven square miles of Sacramento out of 100 square miles. So and we know it's a small number of offenders and we're not going to employ that kind of tactic, what we used to do. Uh, we also know that we have great community based organizations. And I've said this time and time again, I'll continue to say it, that the police department can't do it alone. Any law enforcement agency that says that they're going to fix the violent crime problem on their own they're you know they're not even of this reality right. because right. you need to have community buy-in and right. community support and you need to have community partners so we really started taking a look at the data knowing what we knew about our city and putting a strategy together and then you know 10th and k happened which you know, as tragic as that was, that really, I think, gave us an opportunity to be very public about what we were trying to do to address violent crime. And so you say, you know, how is it working? We've done something kind of different. It's not just an enforcement approach. We have engaged, um, like really formally engaged a number of community-based organizations that do great work in our community. We know that they, um, they're they able to really connect with people that we can't. They're able to do that follow-up that the police are just not really designed to do, work with families and try and get people people back, you know, on their feet or moving in the right direction. And so that's a huge strength that we have here in Sacramento. So we really leveraged that with a very intelligence-based um, approach to violent crime. And I can tell you, you know, our, our numbers are definitely trending in the right way. I'm not usually one to take credit for things. I think it's early. But for instance, last year, you know, about 30% fewer people got shot in our city. That's significant, yeah. you know, compared to the year before. Yes. We took a, a large number of guns off the street, but not just through enforcement. We did two gun buybacks. And I couldn't believe the response. You know, we we decided you got to do creative things. And you have to take risks. It was a gas, right? Was it a gas? A gas thing? card initially, yeah. yeah. And How much uh, you get for a gun? How much gas we only did fifty got? bucks, and we got um, you know a lot of people said, "Well, oh, you got to give more for rifles and whatnot." So we that has turned out to be an overwhelming wow. success. You know, we advertised it on social media, and there were a lot of people that came out and blasted us. I'm like, "Well, we're going to try it anyway." And I'll tell you, um, the first day that we did it, we've done it twice now. We've got another one coming up, but first time. Um, you know, we hadn't even started. We had a line around the block and we were out of gas cards within about 90 minutes and uh, turned in a tremendous number of no guns. No questions and asked? No questions asked. You know, we're basically going to take them and destroy them. And we got, you know, a wide range of answers. People said, you know, I just, I don't want this to fall in the wrong hands. I don't need it. This belonged to somebody else. I'm here trying to help the community. And so that's why when I say it's a community approach, yeah, those are guns that could be taken in burglary. Those are guns that could right. be taken by, right. you know, a, right. a member of your family. Right. And so um, the fact that the community <clears throat> felt like such a need to do that. And we did a second one in the fall and it was just, just as, as yeah, we had over 400 guns from people just turning them in. So those are 400 guns that aren't going to get lost. They're right. not going to get right. stolen. Right. They're not going to end up in the wrong hands. So talking about statistics, yeah, and I just happen to have your March statistics here, yes. which I see down on the change side, it's all minus. So We're working on it. That yeah. looks good. 
But first of all, before we get into that, what is the state of crime and policing in the city of Sacramento today? Uh, I don't think Sacramento is unique to what's going on in a lot of big cities. You know, we still, as much as, um, you know, I'm proud of the successes that we've made, we still see a surge in crime, property theft crime, retail theft, um, we see assaults, you know, and I think we're, I would say we're starting to normalize in 2023. 2022 is still a little bit of anomaly. 2020 and 2021, very strange years for us. So it's hard to compare crime, but we've overall seen an uptick. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, the courts really struggled during COVID, you right. know, um, the laws don't hold people accountable, quite honestly. And I think that they're well-intentioned, but I don't know that they're having the effect that truly, you know, constituents in the state expected. Um, the the accountability piece and the inability to really, truly rehabilitate people, I think is a challenge. And then, you know, um, you know, you look at the need for good mental health care and drug addiction treatment, and right. we're challenged on that. Right. And, you know, a lot of our crime centers around those right. issues, you know, whether and it's- And the, the next segment is is that. Yeah. But going back to this, so uh, when I saw this, this is the monthly chief's report. I guess you do this yes. every month. Every this month. is for March 23. And it says here, phone calls received by the communication center. Would that be 911 calls? Yeah, 911 and non-emergency, yeah. so both. So in March, they got 53,000-plus yeah. calls. And year-to-date, like almost 154,000. And um, and it's and the spotter is the gun that when someone fires a gun, you can spot where it is. Yeah, right? shot spotter technology. It's an audio it's, system that And you obviously it. have quite a few, but... Um, there's there's several, they're all in you know in the mid hundreds I guess, but shooting reports was thirty nine, um, a number of victims shot was fourteen. Yeah. Now is that to me that sounds like a lot, but is that a lot? Um, it's obviously still, one is too many. Yeah, but, I mean I, that's yeah. what I would say. One yeah. is too many. I mean people shouldn't be getting shot in our city. No. Um, but you know. But you know, like it's a big city, it's, and it's yeah, it's a big city, and there's a lot that goes on, and that's why um, you know when we're looking at like numbers aren't just numbers. Numbers are actual people, right? When we're talking about homicides, we're not talking about just the victim. You're talking about the family, and we're talking right. about urban violence, and really trying to reduce the number of people that get shot. Um, that's critical for a couple reasons. One, you don't. People shouldn't be getting shot, right? right. There's the physical and the right. emotional right. effects from that if, if you survive, right. right? And it's not a homicide. The ripple effects through a community and the perception of safety, especially by our youth, is something that's not really measured. And so we've done a lot of work in that area to see really what the impacts of gun violence is. And it's alarming, the traumatic effect that it has on our communities and how, you know, and whether or not that leads to additional gun carrying by people that don't feel safe, especially right. by our kids. And so it's a lot it's a much bigger issue right. than just the cost of a shooting, right. the, you know, the cost of treatment, the, the you know, effects, the, yeah. the cost of yeah. holding somebody accountable. Right. So when, you know, you're looking at those numbers to have a 30 percent <laughs> reduction, that means that's 30 percent less harm yeah. to the communities. Um, but no, there's and, and the percentage year to date. I mean, they're all there's no pluses here. Well, maybe there is. But there, there's a lot of minuses. Yeah, it's always a moving. What What is number. the big? What is the 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 cry? The bigger cry? Is it thefts? Is it assaults? Is it what? What are? What is a? You know, the crimes that just a lot. The, uh, it's just a lot. Well, you know, I think um, when I became chief, really, there's a lot of things to look at, right? I mean, crime was up in 
in every category. It's still not great. I mean, we still have a lot of crime, unfortunately. But, you know, when you have limited resources, you have to be really careful about overextending and not being effective in area any area. If you make everything a priority, nothing's a priority. And we knew that we had to, like, literally stop the bleeding in the city. And that's why we put so much of a focus on trying to reduce our violent crime, especially our gun violence. And so that's where we put a lot of our resources. That's where we put a lot of our intelligence. Um, we were lucky enough to be the recipient of something called the Public Safety Partnership Grant. It was only given to six cities across the nation. Fortunately, you become eligible when your crime is higher than right. where it should be for your city. But it's brought in a tremendous partnership with our federal partners, a lot of technical assistance, things that you want to do as chief, but you never really have the money to do, you know, as far as doing an analysis of, you know, um, you know where we could be more effective. How do we do better intelligence? based policing, you know, how do we how do we use our tools most effectively? Um, and so I can say with that partnership, and then I think having this very unique relationship with a lot of our community-based organizations, you know, we're doing better. If you ask me what I think our biggest challenge is outside of that, um, you know, I think domestic violence, which we really saw a huge increase at, during the pandemic, right. is still something really, really significant. And it's interesting to see the connection between um, people that are involved in shootings. You certainly saw that at K Street and a domestic violence involvement as well. And so- K Street are, had a domestic violence involved, it did? Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, and you see that um, lots of times shooters have um, a history of domestic right. violence being involved in it. And so um, we address the domestic violence side as much as we address right. shootings, which I think most people probably wouldn't have predicted. Um, right now, I think it's the quality of life crimes. If you ask, you know, how people feel about whether or not they feel safe, whether or not, um, you know, they feel like there's going to be accountability, most most people would say that crime is a challenge, right? And lots of it is the low-level stuff. It's the theft from cars. It's, um, you know, it's the the racing, the sideshows that we have, the traffic issues. It's the street-level narcotics that they see. It's the blight, you know, surrounding. It's like large homeless camps where you see a lot of victimization within those camps. You see a lot of drug use. You see theft. Um, and I think those, um, even though they're not entirely on our radar, they don't hit that violent crime um, like kind of point. When I go to community meetings, when I sit in people's living rooms and we have neighborhood meetings, those are the things that people talk to us that are a concern to them. Right. So certainly violent crime from your police right. chief point of perspective is huge and we right. have to reduce it. I think to many of um, our community members, you know, it's more about what they see every day. And the smaller crimes are the ones I think that are more. I'm just for a personal thing. I moved from East Sacramento to where I am now, which is downtown. Yeah. And, you know, you come out one day and my window has been smashed, yeah. you know, in my car. And, okay, so someone smashed the window. There was nothing to take. Right. And they rifled through the car. And you think, okay, so now what? But it's just the the bother of it. Yeah. And then, you know, and now I go out in the morning and I think, I wonder if it's going to happen again. Sure. But then when you call the police, I mean, they say, well, we don't really deal with that. Yeah. You know, we're not going to really. So I think, you know, as a member of the public, you think, well, why aren't the police dealing with yeah. it? You know, and I understand why. It's a manpower thing, right? It has a lot to do with that. You know, we are we are pretty short staffed. Yeah. As a matter of fact, we just really reorged our whole department to put more people back in patrol. Even right. with that, it's not going to yeah, address yeah. the no, issue. No. You that can't you have. solve that. But those are the things when people just get really yeah, they get frustrated you know, and, yeah. and rightly so. And just it's a mess. You got to clean out your yeah. car and yeah, get a new window, yeah. take time off of work, and then the window can't come for three days. Yeah. And you know, it's it's definitely. And you're not wrong. Yeah. To be frustrated. Yeah. 
So now let's talk about an important issue to me personally, but just to a lot of people, and that's the plight of the unhoused. Yes. Now, Sacramento, it doesn't take much to drive around Sacramento, and you will see it has a, in my opinion, it has a huge, huge. obviously, I'm in L.A. all the time. Now, yeah. L.A. is huge, yeah. especially Skid Row. But Sacramento is a capital city of California. Um. What are your thoughts on homeless issues as a chief of police? Yeah. And I know this is an impossible question, but what can be done to at least make a dent in it? And how do you, as the leader of the police department, instruct your command staff, which is the ones that give the orders, and then the patrol officers to handle delicate situations with unhoused homeless people. Sure. And I think, we, first of all, you have to make the, like understand that there's a difference. Like, it's not a crime to be homeless, no. right? Um, but we do see a lot of criminal activity right. and criminal and victimization. Like well, we course. forget about that yeah. in um, a lot of our camps. So one, it's a really complicated issue. It is, um, it's, it's tough because I don't think anyone predicted it was going to be this way. You know, when you look at a lot of the laws, I think that have led to decreased accountability, I personally relate a lot of that to what we're seeing. And I'll, I'll tell you why, for example, um, like drugs, if somebody's addicted to drugs, you know, even as your police chief, I feel like there should be rehabilitation. Right. Like you should be able to go to a drug court or you should be able to get some type of treatment Help, yeah. and move out. Yeah. Unfortunately, the reality is um, without sort of that carrot and stick approach, people don't necessarily get help. And I was listening, like we've talked a lot about alternative response. I was listening to um, a guy um, up in Eugene, Oregon, who did the Coots program, which has been looked at. And he said he was, you know, addicted to drugs. And he said, you know, the only thing that really got him out of that lifestyle was law enforcement and that he got arrested and that in lieu of a jail sentence, he was there and able to get treatment. And we don't really have that right. in California. And then most of our big felony drug crimes, they're not felonies anymore. So there's not the ability to remove somebody from a situation. You know, we can take their drugs, book them as evidence, but they literally get a ticket and they're left there. Whereas before you would go to jail. Now I'm not saying that's the best use of jail resources, but you see the dynamic in California has changed so much right. in the last couple of years. What you're seeing now are people that are like very much under the influence, very much addicted to drugs and um, have like significant health issues, um, have significant longevity issues, and then also need to support their habit. So that's not, that's not great. The other issue that we really are challenged with is this big increase in mental illness and people say, well, why is, you know, why are we seeing it? And I think one, I think that we've always had a lot of challenges, um, with mental health care, but things have changed too, you know, and I, I'll go all the way back to, you know, the really significant budget cuts that a lot of agencies, county cities had to make, you know, after we saw the great recession where services got cut back. And I'll give you an example. We used to, as a patrol officer, be able, if we ran into someone and had contact with somebody who was in a mental health crisis, unable to take care of themselves, you know, gravely disabled, harmed to themselves or others, that we could take them on an involuntary hold and take them to a facility. It was a very quick drop-off and they got 50, the help. 5150. 5150. Right? Yeah. And we took them to the Sacramento County Mental Health Center. That got closed down. And so we still do that, but now we divert to the emergency rooms. Emergency rooms are not psychiatric no. facilities. Right. So they do the best that they can. I mean, we have a great hospital system, but then unfortunately, people get through this revolving door and like you know like you and i if we get hurt you know unexpectedly sure we go to the emergency room but what do they want you to do follow up with your primary care right, right? right. if you don't have that follow-up system with the primary care we're not going to address it so what we're seeing now is this very inhumane system and you know for me really challenging you know enforcement can be an issue to kind of it can be a, a i guess a tool to kind of manage it but 
we have to deal with the bigger issues, which is an overwhelmingly, you know, uh, a population that has drug addiction issues and mental health challenges. And you will hear me, and I've talked about that for years, um, talk about how we need to make those systems better. The challenge for cities, um, and I'm very appreciative to a lot of our elected leaders that are partnering with the county, is the cities don't maintain that funding, right? We don't get the funding for that. It all comes through the county. So fortunately, there's a partnership agreement now between the city and the county. And I'm hoping between being very creative with what we do, really leveraging those resources and having a focused approach, we'll be able to address them and make people's lives better and safer. And on the topic of mental illness and the homeless, so, you know, police officers these days wear many hats. And one of them is they have to sort of understand mental health issues, especially when it comes to to homeless people. And I know um, cops receive basic training on these issues, but they're not experts in mental health matters, I don't imagine. You established a full-time mental health team within the department, which is led by a, a licensed social worker. So what is that? Tell us about that. Yeah, um, actually, the the team, um, we're kind of reorganizing it, but I that's not my idea. Like, you know, I guess that's the best compliment. Um, and a, about seven or eight years ago, um, I listened to Adam Palmer, who's the chief in Vancouver, British Columbia, gave a presentation on the challenges that they were seeing in Canada. A lot of young men in particular um, that had committed a, a series of like really violent assaults. And so it really got the city to take a different look at what they did. And so they use police officers, but they essentially have a very robust team that would do case management. And so what we face in the city is that we see people that are starting to experience some mental health challenges. We see that they could potentially degrade and we see families that really need support and help. And so, for example, um, you know, if we have a call for service where somebody doesn't really meet that criteria of like, we're not going to put them on a hold, but there's definitely some follow-up that needs to be done. Um, then that team actually um, comes out and does the follow-up. And unfortunately, they're really, really small right now because we just don't have the staffing to do it. But at the same time, they're they're really overwhelmed. But um, I can tell you, they're a great group of professionals that see it both through the police lens and then also, you know... So it's police and civilians. um, Yeah, we'd actually like to... We're going to replace our our social worker had moved on to a different position within the city. But I would love to see more social workers within our organization. And I think that we'll get there through the county yeah. partnership because they leverage behavioral health specialists and mental health professionals with enforcement. And I really believe it needs to be a, a like a an approach where we jointly respond, a co-response model, right. you know, um, and then to really work on following up for people. How has the passing of Measure O impacted the way officers deal with homeless issues? So here's an, another yeah. personal example. When I drive home, I drive on, it's on F Street and maybe 20 something. There's sure. a bridge. Sure. And for a year, the both sides of the bridge, it was like a tent encampment, yeah. both sides. Yeah. For a year. Measure O passes and they're really shortly thereafter. One morning, they're all gone. Yeah. And, and they, they used to be gone and then they come back and they go and they come back. But this particular time, and it was after Measure O, they're gone. Right. And they've never been back since. Right. Now, is that as a direct result of Measure O and the way the police deal with them or is it something else? I would say probably not right now. But because um, having said that, you know, there's the Boise decision. I know that a lot of people know about the Boise decision. Basically, that makes it illegal to enforce for camping if um, there's no like publicly available shelter. Right. So Measure O has done a number of things, right, which has really, um, I think, helped the county 
put funding where it needs to be with some additional shelter space. Um, and I think that's going to be kind of a game changer, not for the enforcement side so much, but to actually get people placed or get them into some type of housing. But also, you know, we talk about the housing first model um, a lot. And I think for a certain segment of our, you know, our homeless population, certainly there is the need for that. But I think primarily we also need to treat addiction and mental illness. And without doing both, like we're going to fail. And so I, the measure O, um, you know, uh, leg- or measure O, I think is going to be great for the county as a whole because the county is putting so much work and resources and focus on trying to build out shelter space and provide behavioral health resources to cities that now we actually have a place to help to help people, to help right. move people, to get them. Because there's not really, it doesn't really benefit people just to shuffle folks no, no. around. So right? when you go and you tell them to move, where do they go? Well, I mean, they can go to a variety. There is some enforcement certainly that gets done, especially around critical infrastructure, you know. But typically they'll, you know, relocate to else? another place. Yeah. So you're moving it from here to that. Which is why, you know, yeah. displacement is not right. the answer necessarily. You know, um, you know, obviously you do want to manage the trash. And, I mean, everyone sees, like, these large camps and the blight. Right. And you can't ignore that that's you know that's not okay and no, so trying no. to manage that piece of it yeah. but i you know i struggle just pushing people around isn't really helpful right. either it's a bigger systemic no problem. it's a huge problem yeah. i don't know the answer and i know you obviously well i'm not going to preempt what you're going to say but i i mean i would imagine you're going to agree that they are but do you think police officers in general are sympathetic to the plight of the homeless and the reason i ask is because when you're a cop, you know, you're dealing with the same things over and over and over again, and you become sort of complacent. You know, you become, okay, it's just another. Yeah. But do you think that the general cop on the street is actually sympathetic, or do they just see it as another part of, you know, someone who's just a shoplifter or a drunk or whatever? What What do you think? I think that's one of our biggest challenges. Everyone gets in this profession because they say they want to help people, right? right. And we really do. And right. there's a lot of great impacts right. that you can have. But I also think the reality is, too, that you go day to day to the same types exactly. of calls. You have to be very, very careful right. not to be jaded, not right. to become biased that right. way. And I think that's a, a challenge for, for cops. And I think, um, you know, certainly the public perception, you know, if you feel like the world's against you, it can make you – callous. It can make you not feel proud of what you do. There's a great study um, uh, by the Pew um, uh, firm, and it's the 2016 Behind the Badge study. And it's really interesting to compare how the public feels about the police, how the police feels about the public, and how on some things that we're very, very close on and some things we're widely divergent on. And so that to me says that there's something culturally there that, um, that clearly isn't um, really clicking, right? And so I think I mean, I can tell you, I work with great people, great human beings, you know, and I'm very, very proud of the work that they do. I mean, a lot of the stuff that you'll never, ever see that you know, it's never going to make the nightly news. And you know, these tremendous examples of caring, of going above and beyond, of really trying to help people coming out of their own pocket yeah. for um, we had one of our sergeants the other night by, you know, a car seat for yeah. um, no, a no, family. And many examples. Many, many that. examples. Yeah. Right. And so I don't think that you can be in this line of work right. um, without having compassion and really right. love for your fellow human right. being. But I also think it can be very, very frustrating in right. a way. And we all need to make sure that we're sort of checking each other. And that's really right. where culture comes into your organization, right? To make sure that you're not seeing that level of callousness. Um, you know, there's not, you know, the banter. It's right. not othering of right, people. Right. Um, because people do find genuinely find themselves homeless very quickly. They can, absolutely. They have a house today and yep. tomorrow you're under the bridge. And I think if the police officer treats them as they would, 
you know, mentally ill, drug, whatever, I could I can see how that would be not a good thing. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, so. Well, I have a, a good story I'll tell you because I, I tell the story and um, if I have a second here for uh, when we teach community, or, I'm sorry, customer service to our officers. So one of my... And you call it customer I service? I call it customer yeah. service, yeah. yeah. And actually, I'm really blessed because... You know, I've seen this and very few agencies are doing it, I think, really well. Um, but we have a team of officers that saw how important it was. And really, it's important from the the service level that we want to provide good service. But it's really important for officer wellness. Right. Like you want to come home every day feeling like you made a difference, that your job, you know, right. like was meaningful. You don't want to come home upset and angry and um, thinking that the world doesn't care. And I think having a different mindset that you really are out there to help people is is important. But I'll tell you, um, it comes down to a basic level of respect. And you can watch um, Chuck Ramsey, who is one of, I would say, my mentors, but yeah. I followed him for a number of years. Former um, DC. You know, former DC yeah. and commissioner and, in Philly. And Seattle. Oh, Philly. Philly. Right. Yeah. yeah. Started in Chicago. He's a great yeah. human being. And he talks about being a young cop in Chicago and how he was on a narcotics team and a guy on his team named Paris Patton. I don't know where Paris Patton is today. I hope he knows that this story has gone a long way. But um, he said that basically Paris was the kind of guy that, you know, you could kick in a door, you could detain everybody, you know, very, very chaotic. And by the end of that situation, Paris had formed a friendship. He had developed an informant. He had such a great way of talking to people. You know, there's sometimes people that really don't handle situations well and get people really riled up. And there's people that do the yeah. opposite. Well, he was the opposite. So he says um, in this TED talk, it's on on YouTube, and I've you know I've talked to him about it. That he asked Paris one day, he's like, "How is it that you're this way? Like, how is it that you're able to talk to anybody?" And he's like, "It's really simple." He's like, "Everybody is born a perfect ten. And he said, um, take, you know, a couple of points right off the top because, you know, you're, everyone's going to die at some points. So take three points off the top. He says, if you are born into a home with domestic violence, with drug use, with, you know, poverty, um, you know, uh, having not the means that other people have, take off another three. He says, if you are a person of color, if you're a minority, um, if you, you know, have parents that just recently resettled here and you're new to the culture, take off another three. And that leaves you one point. He says that one point is someone's sense of dignity and respect. And he's like, whatever you do, do your job, but never, ever take away that person's sense of dignity because wow. that is all they have left and they will fight you for it. And so when you think about it that way, there, you know, we're not all born into like the same starting gate, right? We all come in at different levels, but we all have this 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 base nature to feel like a human being, to be respected and have people respect that. And so it comes down to a matter of respect for everyone. And so when you're talking about, I think the most important thing that we can do besides empathy, it's that basic respect for one another, right. you know, and Grant, we don't always receive it, certainly by the nature of what we do, no. but I can say we are always expected okay. to give it. And if we... If we could, if we could change that in law enforcement and in, in government, I think we'd be in a tremendously different. But it spot. starts at the top, and you yep. and your command people that you expect that from absolutely the street, the yep. street officers. Yeah. And then the last question, just on um, the whole homeless thing, do you think drug court should be reintroduced? And if so, like why? Do you have you seen the benefits of drug courts? Oh sure. Yeah. I mean, I think anyone. I think you know, trying to deal with drug use and and, and drug abuse is one of the toughest things yeah, that people have to go through. To and out. you know, um, it, it's a medical issue for sure, but certainly becomes a crime problem pretty quick, right? And so the two go hand in hand. You know, right. and I'm a law and order chief. I believe in holding people accountable. You know, there are. 
a lot of things that I think are really important with what we do. However, I also think that you need to look at like, what is your goal and what's your intended outcome here? And the intended outcome is to have people get off of drugs and not engage in the behaviors that they're engaging in. And it's really hard when you see families get torn apart. Like the fentanyl issue right now, especially among our kids is just as a mom, that's just killing me, you know, to, to watch. Um, it's, absolutely tragic and uh but yeah i think anything that you could do like if it takes enforcement to get some people or somebody into a program that ultimately leads them to be successful i don't care drop the ticket make them you know get them to be get them to be successful in the end and get them off drugs and that's what we're trying to do but i think that we certainly have an arm but i would say you know there's there's really three legs to the stool of the justice system one is law enforcement two you've got your judicial system you know your DAs right. your prosecutor your judges and you've got your correction system right. and i think that there's been a lot of focus on the enforcement leg right. and not so much on right. the other two legs and right. i think that that needs to be it needs to be a system wide yeah. effort so we have interviewed, as you know, both Sheriff Sacramento Sheriff Jim Cooper and then Rancho Chief Brandon Luke. Yep. And when I asked them both the same question, I'm going to ask you, um, what is their biggest challenge they face, you know, today? And immediately both of them, without hesitation, they didn't even think about it, without hesitation, said that the challenge is in recruiting, that they're short, or both of them. I yeah. mean, Jim Cooper was really short-staffed. Yeah. Is this the same for SAC PD? And what are the some of the ch- why? Why is that? Why is it so difficult today? Yeah. To because being a police officer is a good job. Great right? job. I mean, you get health benefits, you get pay, you get respect by most people. Yeah. You know, it's a long-term career. Why is it? And I and my follow-up question is: I think. It's probably all started with the whole George Floyd thing, the the main sort of thing, right? So is that a problem with SAC PD recruiting? It, well, I would actually add to it. I'd say it's recruiting, but it's retention, just as important, right? right? Um, and that's something we don't talk about a lot. Yeah, right. it's a challenge. We were down 100 cops right now, right? right. We're authorized 769. I've got a bunch, uh, 30 in the academy. But really, you know, it's down about 100. And so right. that really limits what you're able to do. And if you and go- And is 100 a lot in the scheme oh, of it? it's is huge. It? My it? gosh, if you look, you look back um, at, in 2010, 2011, 2008, actually, I think was our peak. We had 804 cops in the city. And that was before you had all the build of downtown and the arena, Delta Shores, Natomas, right? Our population now is 525,000 right. people. Um, so we've got 50,000 more people. And you sent, definitely, I mean, you live downtown. I mean, quite a robust nightlife, yeah, right? Very Much robust, different. Yeah. Really what you want to see in a Til city. Till two in the morning. Till two in the morning, yeah. right? Well, that takes cops, right? Yeah. And so there's these new dynamics. It's not just about population. We're working with, you know, less than 700. So it limits my ability to do things like you say, like, like, you know, somebody gets into an accident, well, we just may not be able to go. We don't right. have the cops to right, do it. Right. We are really focusing on right. the really violent stuff in right. progress. Um, the challenge, I think, is getting people into the profession. One, um, you know, some of it is through like a financial need, um, you know, for people that need or want those good jobs. There's a lot of great jobs out there. Um, I think some, a lot of it has to do with mindset, right? And a lot of what you see, um, you know, whether you get your news from social media, whether you get it from mainstream media, a lot of negative stuff out there. And so that's people's perception. Um, certainly, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of worry by parents. You know, when we interview people, moms are always worried. You know, families aren't really excited about having their kids get into this line of work. That's not to say that it's not extremely honorable and that you can you can't you, you have 
an amazing opportunity to do a, a, a job like no other. And we hire great people all the time. Challenges, we're not able, like, so we're hiring into the profession. We're just not able to keep up with people leaving the profession. Right. And I think what you saw after, you know, and it, it wasn't just 2020. Remember, we've had about a decade now right. of like a lot of challenges yeah. in law enforcement. You know, cops that could retire, you know, just they're say, leaving. Okay. You yeah. know, a little early, you know, they're not doing their 30 plus years. They may leave at 25, you right. know. Um, I think the pandemic for everybody, law enforcement or not, gave people the opportunity to really kind of think about what they were doing and why they were doing it. And so what we are challenged with is kind of like um, – a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. And I'll, I'll talk about our dispatch center. So like in our, it's not just sworn, right? In our comp center, we're down about 30% staffing. So imagine yourself as a dispatcher, you know, you're working a 12 hour shift. Um, and no, the, the person that's supposed to come and relieve you, they're not coming. They're either sick. They're not there. They couldn't get someone to fill it. Now you're going to have to stay and work another four hours. So you've already done 12, you're doing another four. What if you have young kids? What if you want to like get to your family? And so we're seeing people like we didn't get to go home for two years. You know, we've been boots on the ground and have been here. Um, And so it's a morale thing. It's a morale thing. It's a workload thing. Um, We're really trying to put a lot more resources into patrol because that's what we hear from our patrol folks that, you know, they are just they're taking a lot of calls. They're really overworked and it gets really tiring. Imagine if you're in that environment. Everybody. I think we all have jobs that days are extremely busy. But imagine if every single day you're being pushed to your limit of what you can do, you know, um, you know, it doesn't take long to start thinking like maybe, maybe there's other places that I need to be, you know, and for us being a big city, we do really neat things. And we have, um, I think, much larger opportunities than some of the smaller agencies around us. But we do lose people to the smaller agencies. And the number one reason we hear it's the pace, it's the workload that we have in the city. So, so the morale in the, okay, so we've talked about the morale, it's a morale thing in in the SAC, police department how is it compared how does it change when a high profile case happens so sure. you know a floyd a brianna taylor freddie gray etc i mean you had your own high profile in 2018 yep. when stefan clark was shot and killed um the you know the, the police officers mistook his cell phone for a gun he was climbing a fence you know it happens right it's a terrible terrible thing but then you had a lot of protests and everybody hates you and you're all murderers. And how does that affect like a good cop on the street? He's a good cop. He loves his job and he's there to help people. How does he come to work the next day? Well, you know, I think a, a lot of it is we understand now, whether it happens here locally or whether it happens across the country, the profession is really viewed as one, right? Despite differences in training, right. expectations, policy. And so I think that's something that has really changed in law enforcement over the last five or six years. And I would say it goes back to probably Ferguson when we started right. seeing. Um, I think sort- Ferguson was probably the first one. First time. And there, but there had been a lot of incidents, you know, yeah. before and after then. But I think that was one that, you know, we well, really that caused started. the big riots. Yeah, and, started looking yeah. at things differently. So you realize that, you know, you definitely um, are – you, you know, if something happens across the country that's negative, it's all going to reflect on us as a profession. And so, you know, of course, you know, coming like we're very proud of what we do. We know we work really hard, ethical, good, honest people. But, yeah, it's got to wear on you, you know, yeah. when you see that, you know, and um, to be on protest lines where everyone's screaming at right. you and you know, saying, the, saying the worst things, yeah. you know, I mean, we're pretty resilient. And you you have know, to keep, yeah. you kind of have to yeah. like understand like, hey, this is, you know, you 
try, you know, certainly try not to take it, it personally. But, you know, we actually saw um, a big push from families that no longer want their husbands, their wives to be in the profession, right? Worried about them, worried about the toll that it would take, you know. And so that was as much of a part of losing folks over the last couple of years as it is people. Just really, when you ask them, they still love the job. Right. They love the people. They're just tired, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I think that 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 says something. And talking about retention, so I told you they ask, you know, my guys here ask questions. So Raphael has a second question. He never asks questions, by the way. I'm Jose curious. is the question guy. Okay. But he's asking questions. So how do you or your command staff up and down, down to sergeants, how do you motivate officers on a day-to-day -day basis as far as retention? Yeah. So a lot of, um, it's a, a good point. One, I think the most important person in the organization is the first line supervisor, the sergeant. Right, the you know, sergeant. when people leave their job, and this isn't unique to law enforcement it's because of the person that they work with directly like who's their boss you know so I as the big chief I can send out lots of directions and I can you know say hey we're doing these things this is what I expect but if you're not working for somebody who you really feel values you or you're a part of a team that's that's a challenge so I think a big part of it is getting your first line supervisors to kind of see what we're trying to do and support it the other thing I think that's really important to do is reward what you feel is important right so for me service is really important um, doing you know that good work in the community Community. Certainly, you know, doing like the core functions of our job and providing public safety and conducting enforcement, but doing it in the right way. So when we see examples of that, we go really out of our way to make sure that, that is being recognized, right. you know, department wide. We we just um, we're trying. Um, one of the things that's always been really hard is to measure how we're doing. Right. I mean, you can look at the big numbers, you know, ratios of officers, um, crime stats. But um, we we um, got this technology and um, it basically it does a couple of things. One it helps communicate with whoever's calling uh, to give you a better idea of how long the officer is going to be to get there, where your report is in the queue, you know, so you get it on a text message, right. but it also gives you the ability to give feedback about how the officer did, right? And um, the numbers are great and people's comments are great. And so I think the officers need to hear that. You know, we always talk like about accountability and reform and those are important things, but there's also, it's just as important to reward good work and to recognize the positive things because it can't all be about how you know, everything needs to change. We're doing this wrong. There's so much work that's getting done well. That's just as important. So it's partly my job to make sure that we're pushing that out. We're recognizing right. it. And people know that they're valued and we really appreciate what they're doing. So if I call the police for something, yeah. nothing serious, just something that I need police. And I'm so impressed with that, the person who responded. And then I decide to write to the chief's office yep. and I say, hey, officer so-and-so, I want to tell you he was great. He I mean, it was fantastic. Do you go back and tell him that I wrote to you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. As a matter of fact, um, we'll attach a copy of your letter. We'll oh, yeah. write up a letter. We'll send it to them. And then lots of times um, I always try and thank the people that took the time to write because people don't yeah. have to do no, that. And no. I really appreciate yeah. that they do, you know. And so to take the time to compliment or to thank one of our officers, everybody's busy. And right. You don't need to do that. But it goes so far. Right. that but you, yeah, do, you do absolutely. relay back that. Absolutely. And we get a lot, I get a lot of emails. I meet people on the street that say, oh, hey, I had a interaction right met so officer so and so you know and i think it's really important that that, that gets shared yeah. absolutely and we're big but we're not so big that no, no, no. we don't know everybody yeah, like we right, all know each other right. so it helps being a police chief in a city like sacramento that houses the state capitol yeah it has the building with state senators and the assembly you know it's like the dc of the state yeah um it's also the largest state in the nation of course does that bring more challenges being the, the head of the, the the law enforcement agency than it would let's say 
in Fresno, which oh, has an sure. equal population. Yeah. What are those challenges? Being the state capital, boy, you are the epicenter for right. anybody who wants to express their political right. interest or position or cause, on something. Or cause havoc. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then we're really kind of the epicenter, too, for great things. I, you know, you don't always make it like a negative thing. We've got Golden One downtown. Right. I mean, right. we had 20,000 people, um, you know, for game one as right. we went on and we made game seven. I mean, right. You know, those are great problems to have, but there are certainly staffing challenges. So, yeah, to kind of to your first point, being the capital, um, I mean, we certainly draw a lot more um, focus and attention of, of people. I mean, daily we have protests downtown, and I don't think that most people know that because you never no. ever hear about well, it, unless right? Unless you live downtown. Unless you live downtown. Yeah. You see it, and streets are closed right, and moving right. around. Same thing as, like, all capital cities. You know, we've got a really good relationship with the California Highway Patrol. Right. They take care so of the, the capital. So the Highway Patrol takes care of the capital, Capital right? and the yeah. state buildings and the downtown. Street streets around? Nope. The streets no? are ours. Yeah. Oh. So if there's something at the Capitol that attracts people or they're there for a permanent event, Capitol takes it. But in a lot of cases, you'll see a permanent event at the Capitol. And then they, because there's a permanent event there, they won't be able to right. permit um, an event that is contrary to that. And so they end up on the city streets or if there's a march or anything. So we're very uh, much in tune with what goes on at the Capitol because anytime it comes off the sidewalk of the Capitol, it belongs in the city of Sacramento. Now we are responsible for making sure that it's managed the right and way. And all the protests, you have to police all of those. Well, you know, I wouldn't say, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say policing. We're not really there to enforce. We're really there well, to I mean, make sure to. that, yeah, you have to yeah. make sure. The thing is you, you want well, to make sure that- not, uh, uh, could turn violent, right? They, Especially the political can. ones. Well, they're so emotional, right? Yeah, and yeah. people have like a lot. And so our job is really to one, let people express their First Amendment rights and two, keep people safe. Right. And then, you know, to prevent any kind of property or physical, you know, right. harm to, to anyone. And so it's a tall order and it certainly draws on our resources for things that have nothing to do with the city of Sacramento. Right. And the challenge with that is, you know, we always we're always able to kind of get the cops to do it, but you do take them away from their core duties. Right. So if you have a burglary that's being investigated, right. Well, your burglary detective may be at right. the Capitol for Back two your, days yeah. or, you your know, uniform, downtown, yeah. which means your your burglary is not getting investigated right. right now. So, you know, there's only, you know, you can only kind of push and pull so much. And so, yeah, we definitely have a bigger need. But, you know, we have great things um, as well, which is that, you know, we really have a good draw for downtown nightlife. You know, I lived downtown 20 years ago and um, boy, it was a ghost town after five o'clock. State workers went home. Not much right. happened. Right. Now it's where you really want to see a city, right. very vibrant nightlife. Right. You've got these great events at the arena, right. all sorts of things going on throughout right. the city, you know. Um, and I think we manage those really, really well. Um, but where it's not an enforcement issue, it's definitely a crowd issue. And there's enforcement pieces right. of that, you know, people drink too much or you get, you get, you know, fights and whatnot. But for the most part, you know, those are really great events and public's coming out to have a good time, but you got to manage traffic. And then you have tourists here, and right? you have tourists. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You yeah, know, that want to see. It's very similar to DC. I yeah, think. yeah. Yeah. I think DC has, I think they said 31 different agencies yeah. that they work with. Right. So we don't have 31, but we no. have a lot. Right. <laughs> So here's a Jose question. Okay. So as a woman who climbed the ranks in what many would call a traditionally male-dominated environment, workplace, a police department, as a female chief, do you still see barriers that female police officers are experiencing? And what can be done to change that? What do you, because you're a, you know, you're a female chief, yeah. you're the boss, so you can change whatever you want. 
So if you see that, how do you do that? You know, um, well, first of all, is it a, is it a problem? Well, I think it's challenging because I, you know, I'm a mom. I've got yeah. three kids. Right. You know, we have different. Did you face that? Oh, I, I coming think up? It, I think it was a challenge. Yeah, and actually, um, you know, there were jobs I turned down because I knew I wasn't going to be able to take care of my family the way I needed to take care of them. Yeah, but I think it's a challenge for all parents. I think that women have a different um, sort of obligation, right? I was a single mom for about 10 years doing this job. And so trying to shuffle, you know, those duties and, you know, I was a graveyard watch commander. I was a captain, you know, and then I remarried and our family of two went to a family of five. So I've got three kids now. And, um, you know, you really have to lean on your family and you really have to make adjustments. I think the biggest challenge for women, and I talk about this, is that we tend to like hold ourselves back because, um, you know, there's never a good time to promote, never a good time to take that test. So I try and be an example that, yes, you can do these things and you can still have work-life balance. And I tell people about the mistakes that I've made throughout the years, you know, um, and, you know, how you address those things. Um, but I think it takes a whole team and you have to have a culture that knows that, hey, if you have a sick kid, you're not going to be like, we're not going to look at you like in a different way or think that you can't do the job because you got to run and get your kid right. out of school. Right? right. And that's different than way that it used to be. It was, I remember like almost like hiding the fact that I had a kid because I didn't want to affect um, my job. But I can also tell you that I've had an incredibly supportive network of um, mentors and mostly men, by the way, that really kind of helped me out and pushed me along. And so I think, you know, we as, as women leaders, you know, we have to make sure that we impart on people that it's going to be okay, that you can do it. Um, you have to make, you know, you've got to make some tough choices sometimes. It's a balance. You know, you need to have a plan. But I think having that support and having people see that you can do it and be successful is um, is tremendous. You know, and you can't, like, make it all sound like it's it's roses either. You know, there are days that, you know, you're going to have a kid that's homesick with the flu and you've got a big project due right. or you've got to, you know, present in front of council and you're going to be <laughs> up. You know, that's parenting, though. That's right. not unique to the profession. What is unique to the profession is we don't always have the ability, uh, you know, to call in sick, to not be there. Um, but having said that, it's extremely rewarding. And I think that our kids are really proud of what they see, even if they don't tell you that right away. Right. right? Um, right. I see a lot of kids that are very proud of their, their parents. parents. I think it teaches them, quite honestly, <coughs> like a good work ethic. And it right. shows what a life of service is and, and commitment. And that doesn't mean you give up one for the other. It's not right. all about a life of service and no family or right. family and, and no <coughs> life it's finding a balance <clears throat> so on the vein of young people yeah here at the california with the california capital film office we just finished a program in conjunction with pal the rancho pd mm -hmm. pal pal the police activities league where we worked with kids and we showed them how to develop a, a pretty serious psa we had one on suicide cyberbullying, racism and animal cruelty yeah and they were very hard-headed um, and we taught them from beginning to end. They filmed them. They wrote them everything. I have a particular interest in pals and sows because I believe fairly passionately that exposing young people to police officers where they work together and you're exposing them when they're young. Maybe their parents are not good citizens, but the kids, you know, the kids are the kids. And you expose them to police officers at a young age, especially in inner cities where the police have a, a bad, a worse rap, um, and be comfortable around cop. So as a chief of police in your department, how important is it to you to reach young people through programs such as PAL, and then to support in turn the officers who run those programs? Yeah. Because they're doing that as part of their duties, or maybe in addition to their duties. And do you take an active role in PAL? Like, do you over, you know, like take an interest 
And how important is it for the police to have good relationships with the young of the community? That's well, a lot of questions. That's a lot that. of questions. So I'll yeah. do my best. You'll get me back on track if I go off. Yeah. Um, you know, number one, um, it's not just about the police. It, to be successful as an adult, I think you need two things. One, you need to have someone who's a mentor that can be a family member, that can be a friend, somebody who that you can go to when you are struggling, when you have questions. Because even though you're technically an adult, you know, there's a lot of learning and living to be done. That's number one. Number two, you have to have a way to support yourself, right? So you have to have access to a job. And if we could do those two things for most of the kids in our city, we'd be much, much better off. Um, I One, it's it's hugely important, and I'll tell you why. I think part of it comes from my like experience as a kid, too, because I realize how lucky I am to be here. I shouldn't be sitting here, right? My high school dropout, you know, got into the Army early. There's so many places that I could have gotten off track, have gotten – things have gone wrong. So I feel – I think a sense of obligation to give back because I feel really, really lucky and blessed. So, did you have a mentor that? Um, not really at first. My first mentor, <laughs> I think, truly was um, well. There's Mr. Barris over at Cordova, who I know is retired. He was a great teacher and really, I could tell, loved his students. And so, I haven't seen him in years. He's a great guy. When I got into the army, my first commander um, was a guy named Dave Shaw, and he was a great leader. And I think he really, um, he's somebody who I'm very appreciative for right. for like just kind okay. of leading and guiding and me. And I'm sorry I got you off track no, no, right there. No, 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 yeah. but I'm saying like to that point, <laughs> you know, I had the ability to support myself and I had somebody who helped lead me through it. Um, and so like even when we had all the budget cuts that I talked about before, we never abandoned our magnet school, um, high school program, our cadet program, um, because we realized how important those connections are in the community. When I worked at the school district, um, you know, we had a truancy program. We would do truancy sweeps. And there's one of two ways you can do that. You can do a truancy sweep, get every, all the kids, take them to a gym at one of the high schools, you know, start calling their parents and saying, okay, you've cut school, you're going to go to detention or whatever. So, okay, that kind of, I guess, maybe addresses the problem. But the big question you ask is why is the kid cut in school in the first place, right? And how do we address that? It's a much different approach. And so when we started bringing in counselors, when we started bringing in people that could really address those issues, that's when you see success. But that's how you have to look at it, you know, when, um, and it's a different, it's a, it's a mindset shift for sure. Like, when I started years ago, 30 years ago, you know, if we had a problem kid, we we thought that juvenile hall was the best place for that kid. Tough love. They're right. going to learn lesson. Right. We now know that's like the worst thing that right. you can do for a kid, yeah. right? They get into the system. Right, right. Very hard for them to break a cycle. Worse people than them. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, you're not really like helping them. Not to say that there are times that you don't absolutely have to do it. But I think like especially being a parent has helped me too. look at kids like you would as a parent. You know, you're there to hold them like accountable and to a standard, but also to love and help them. And that's what we need to do as as police officers, right? Um, and kids are different. You know, lots of times um, fear will be exhibited through anger. A scared kid will come off as someone who's really yeah. angry. And so understanding how teenagers think about how they react to things, you know, and understanding that's a different mindset. That's that's learning that has to be done by the cops. And then, you know, also kids, you know, they need to learn how to communicate as well. So I think it's a it's learning for adults and for our kids. But I think when you look at our youth programs, really that's what you're trying to do. Create mentorship, create leadership right. and 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 give kids the opportunity to fail, to have them right. learn, you know, from programs, have right. them, you know, and and have them be successful. And I relate a lot of what I do, quite honestly, at the department um, in life, just to being a good parent. Right. Yeah. And now we're coming to the end, I promise. In the same vein as PAL programs, you designed, secured a grant funding, and developed a youth diversion program 
which was an alternative for the detention for juveniles. Yep. So explain that. What was that? Yeah, I mean, that's been, um, uh, it's been uh, those are the only regrets I have is that these great programs, when they're grant funded, they tend to be not sustainable for the long term. But I, I think the one you're referring to is one I did um, in the school district because we had a lot of kids that were getting in trouble and had a lot of challenges at home. And so we did um, a diversion program, which instead of being, you know, punished with a ticket or a court date, um, we could move you into a diversion program. And basically it offered three, a couple of routes, right? Um, Project Towards No Drugs, um, Anger Management Therapy, um, AOD, Alcohol and Drug Therapy. And so Essentially, in lieu of any kind of punishment, we would send you to like, a, you know, a working group. Um, you go through this evidence based programming and we saw amazing results of the kids that went through the program that were able to kind of get things back on track, do better in school, be successful, have more confidence, get out of kind of the lifestyle they were doing. I think ultimately that's our goal with law enforcement. We come face-to-face every day with people that are really, really in need. And I think it's really playing the long game. It's trying to figure out what people need in the end. I mean, certainly there is definitely a place, and and we absolutely need to, you know, hold people accountable in the immediate future, but or the, the immediate. But we also have to look to the future, too. And that's, I think, a challenge because it's not really how law enforcement was designed. And did it work? Yeah, it worked great. Actually, yeah. we had – it was a two-year program. We had a couple of the kids come to the school board and talk about it. And wow. uh, um, as a matter of fact, and the, the biggest challenges were we needed money to make sure that Kids got fed dinner and that they had bus money to get to and from the programs, you know. Um, But, yeah, those are programs that they wouldn't have have gotten. And, you know, you can punish kids, but in the long term, you know, it's not going to it's not going to help them the way something like that could. So as we get to the end, a couple of very quick questions. So what personally drives you? Oh, boy. Um, I, I think some of it comes from the fact that. I do feel incredibly blessed, right? And you feel like you have a calling going into this job, like you really can make a difference. And so every day in my world, there are opportunities to make a difference. I mean, there's a lot of things that come at you, right? It's busy. There's a lot of like, um, you know, things that you don't expect right. that pop up every and single day. And things turn in an instant. And can turn into an instant. Yeah. You know, this is the only job I've ever been in that I could get fired for something that right. I didn't do, right? right. Um, right. But having said that, um, it's a tremendous opportunity to do things for me that I've seen, you know, um, over the last almost 30 years. And I think that we can change things and do things in a different way. So for me, I know my time is is short. Most chiefs have a short time. So it's about really trying to kind of make a shift in, in what we what we do um, to look at long-term effects, to take everything that we've learned over the years and see how we do it better. And what I hope I'm doing is setting up the next chief of police, the next leadership team that comes along in however many years to do the same thing, to look at what they're doing um, and see how we do it better. The world around us is constantly changing and you need to change with it. You know, there's always, um, there's a comment that says, you know, people hate change. And I would say, well, you're going to hate being irrelevant even more. Right. So, get, you know, kind of get with it and, and figure how we're going to do things in a different and better way. So for me, I think that has a lot to, to do with it. I feel really um, very blessed and feel really lucky to have a personal sense of accomplishment as well as a professional sense. So if someone asked me this question, I would say none, of course. But okay. what mistakes have you made? Oh, gosh, I make mistakes every day. Are yeah. you kidding? I, yeah, no. I mean, you can't learn if you don't make mistakes. And, uh, you know, um, I've started programs that have been complete failures right. that I thought were a great idea. I've gotten initiatives going that, that turned out nowhere. But, you know, I think the idea is to is to try. You right. know, you make leadership mistakes. You make 
you know, errors with administration. Right. You move things around that didn't right. quite work. I think the bigger issue is that if you're not, um, one, you, you have to make changes, but you also have to see, you know, yeah. if they don't work, try right. something new. Exactly. Don't be afraid to try I tell these guys all the time, if you don't try, you'll always regret. Well, what, maybe if I had, it would have worked. And typically, right? yeah, typically yeah. there's not something that can't be undone if it doesn't right. work. I mean, there's certainly critical decisions that that becomes much more important. Those things you, you don't have any room for error right. on. But for a lot of the more long-term things, certainly the opportunity to try something new and if it's not working adjust it or abandon it altogether and 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 try something different yeah don't be afraid and do you think you're born a leader or do you have to learn to be a leader i think you have to i think a little bit of both i think some people have innate leadership qualities right that they are just they sort of naturally influence the people around them but i think for most of us um there's some characteristics um that we have that help but i think a lot of it is learning and being a student of those that have um, done which well one applies us. to you um i i think um, I have the personality for it, the work ethic, the drive, but I think I've done a lot of learning and paying yeah. attention and being a student as well. Well, Chief Kathy Lester, thank you again so much for spending time with us here on the Rancho Cordova podcast. I know, again, I'll say it again, we appreciate your time, but we always end our shows with a series of quick fire questions. Oh, okay. And I'm, I'm, um, I'm throwing these at you because we didn't tell you in advance, but I'm going to tempt you with them, if you will. Okay. What is one word that others would dis- would use to describe you? Oh, um, enthusiastic. And what is one word you would use to describe yourself? Oh, boy, that's tougher. Um, I think driven. Driven? Driven. And if you could be a person for a day besides yourself, who would it be and why? Ooh, that is a great question. Um, I... Uh, Maybe different than myself. Um, I would love to. Um, I'd love. There's people that you want to have dinner with. That's uh, that's the question that's going through my head. Um, I'd love to have dinner with Theodore Roosevelt. I'd love to have dinner with Oprah. I'd love to Oprah. Oprah. Yeah, I think she's amazing. Yeah. yeah, I think she's she's great. Right. Um, um, you know, John F. Kennedy. I would love to. Um, you know, uh, there's the the young lady who's really involved in climate. I would love to talk to oh, her. Yeah, you yeah. know, Greta Thunberg. Greta. Yeah, yeah. and uh, and just get her perspective. Um, there's not. I don't know that there's anybody else I would want to be. Right. I'm, but I think that I would really like to sit down and have in depth conversations with a lot of people. I think there's very few people that you can't learn something from. I have never, I don't think met anyone, um, you know, that I haven't found to have some kind of something I didn't know or something right, that was right, interesting right. about him. And certainly ones that have a profound effect. Or have so a lot this to learn one, from. this one's for all your officers okay. listening. What is your biggest pet peeve? Oh, my biggest pet peeve is laziness. 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 I hate it. Yeah. yeah. I hate laziness. And fortunately that doesn't come up very much, but right. What yeah. is one app on your phone you couldn't live without? Oh, I love the weather app. You do? I love the weather app. But no, um, I would say uh, one app that I couldn't live without. Um, I like the mapping. Uh, yeah, I like. I love to map. Yeah. I couldn't live without But I love the Google Maps. Not even just to find things. I yeah. like to just explore. Yeah. yeah. What's something about you few people would know? Um, I love to fly fish. And if I could do you anything, do? Yeah. anything um, like in retirement, people always ask, like, when you're retired, hopefully that's a long time for me. Um, but what are you going to do? Are you going to get a chief job somewhere else? No, no. I would love to take people out into the wilderness yeah. and teach them the beauty and the art fly of fly fish. fishing. Yes. 
If I got into your car and I turned on the radio, what am I hearing? Ooh, right now, um, you'd be listening to some um, some Sturgill Simpson um, on the the radio. Right, now. I love old country music because it reminds me of my my grandparents. Right. So I listen to the um, standards and I listen to old country music, okay. and uh, I love that. And finally, what is the biggest lesson you learned from your mother? Ooh, my mom is a very and she'll listen to this because she lives in Rancho yeah. and um and and pays attention. My mom is a um a tough German lady and there's not anyone who is tougher and she raised me to be tough and practical. German with the accent? Not with the no, accent, no. but everything her her, yeah. you know, certainly her, her family. She's from yeah, Pennsylvania, yeah. Right. right? Um but so practical and um you know, so thrifty. I mean, somebody would say that was cheap, mom, yeah. but yeah, she's very thrifty and she raised the four of us on very very little and yeah. um you know, made us really pretty successful. Makes me very much appreciate things and I don't buy things even now without a coupon you know I I make a lot of my own meals and fix a lot of my own stuff but that's how we were raised my mom was also an explorer you know she would put us all in a van and take us out to Point Reyes or Yosemite for the the week you know for a day and I can't imagine you know working full-time loading all your kids in a car and you're one or two days just to widen our perspective so we love nature we love camping and all those great things and then finally 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 What's next for Chief Kathy Lester? Ooh, you know, I uh, anybody that can predict the future <laughs> probably but would probably laugh. I mean, for instance, do you have, I have like when you finish this, would you get into politics, for instance? No, you know what? I think that you never know what opportunities are right. going to lie before you. I didn't know that this would be an opportunity right. for me, truly. So I think whatever it is, it's going to have to fulfill my need really to, as a sense of service and to make a difference. It's not about the money, you know. Right. It's not about a title for me. I mean, I think people know that the title is not it. I think it's about where you want to make an impact and what you want to do. And I think, um, you know, like everyone at this level looking to spend more time with family because, and friends, because I've given up a lot of that. I always look at like a police department as like kind of having an infant child in a way, right? You really had to, you know, make sure that you're giving them all the attention and love and time that they deserve. And it takes away from things that you would want to do personally. So to be continued. To be continued. Well, we've been speaking with Sacramento Police Chief Kathy Lester. Chief Lester, thank you so much for being here. I know you have a million more important things to do. And most importantly, thank you and the men and women of your department for everything that you guys do to keep Sacramento a safe and great place to live and visit. So there you have it, folks. Thank you for listening. Please visit our website, which is www.ranchocordovapodcast.org where you can listen to past shows and please send us any comments or show suggestions you may have. My name is Charles Lego and until next time.